Heavenly Father, we love you, Father. We love your word. We love the gathering of those around us who share that love with us of your word, Father. We just are so excited that we can find a community who cares about these things in this day and in this age. We're thankful that there's a, a larger community around us at Oak Hills that has opened their doors for us here. And together we can minister. And together, Father, we can worship and follow you and be your disciple. We thank you, Father, that that's been made available to us. Now, Father, I ask that you would empower us and guide us and anoint us so that we would use what you've given us properly. We would not squander the opportunity. That we would use the time, the gathering, the skills, the the gifts, the energy that you have assembled here to glorify you, first, by the public proclamation of your word, secondly, by an obedient heart that would listen and do as we hear, and by a community that cares enough to share these things with those around us who dearly need to know of the grace of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I ask that we study today with those intents in our mind that you would encourage us in these things, that you would ensure that my teaching is according to your will, that as I misspeak, misteach, as I may do from time to time, that you would correct those things in the hearts of those who hear, leaving them only with what you care that they should hear. We do all these things confident in your ability, Father, and nothing in our own. Praying in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. We've been studying this. We've already gone through the first 16 verses of this chapter. Those of you who've been around now know we've looked at the section called the Beatitudes. And in the section that we've studied in that part of the chapter, Jesus declared that the kingdom of God, or we could say heaven, has been reserved for those who have a certain spiritual nature about them. Jesus gave us nine traits of that spiritual nature, of what a kingdom-bound person should look and act like. And they included things like humility and repentance and gentleness and purity and mercy and a general longing for righteousness, although it's coupled with an appreciation that we aren't going to get satisfaction in those things this side of heaven. That's what a kingdom-bound person looked like. And we also learned that those traits, the things we call the Beatitudes, are spiritual fruit. They're the result of a changed heart. They're not the way by which you receive a changed heart and your salvation. They are the result of someone whose heart has been changed by faith in Jesus Christ. God sends his spirit to live inside us. That spirit begins to do a work in our nature, changing our spirit, changing our nature. And then over time, we begin to evoke those qualities, those spiritual traits that Jesus said mark those who are going to heaven, to the kingdom. That process makes you very different than the world, makes you look and sound very different than the world. But as I read last week from Luke's gospel, where he covered this same passage, we also noticed that Jesus, in referring to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, he said, this is not how they thought either. This was not typical of them, that they were not authentic representatives of God. He said that they may possess authority over things like the spiritual life of Israel, the rituals of Israel, and so on. And they were certainly experts in the customs of the law. Nevertheless, he says they were ignorant, they were blind, and when it came to knowing how to please God, they had nothing to offer. All right, now I want you to go back to that moment. That's where we left off. I want you to go back to that moment. You're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Put yourself in that day. You're on the side of the hills around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus gave this sermon. 
and you're a Jew, let's say you're a Jew, you live in Israel, and as you hear what Jesus says about the Pharisees and about what it takes to be a kingdom-bound saint, you're stunned because you grew up under Pharisaical Judaism, under the rabbinical training of Pharisees. Since your youth, the Pharisees of Israel have been your teachers. They have been your spiritual guides, your authorities, your example of godliness. Moreover, those guys were the most scrupulous observers of the law you've ever seen in your life. So time and time again, you encounter these people in your everyday life in Israel, and you're amazed at their self-discipline. These guys used to fast several times every week. That was a regular routine for them. When's the last time you fasted at all? And they washed themselves before every meal, beyond what was required by the law. They prayed these long, intense public prayers out on the street corners daily. They would tithe on everything they received down to the point where they gave a portion of the mint or the herbs that grew in their garden. These guys were people that you could not imagine could be exceeded in pleasing God. They set a standard well beyond your reach. And now, sitting at the feet of Jesus, a man you can tell has been empowered by God in what he's done and in what he's said. So you know he speaks with authority, and yet, he just told you that their piety, the Pharisees' piety, counts for nothing with God. They lacked humility, he said. They lacked mercy. They lacked love. They were depending on their own self-righteousness. They were not depending on God's mercy. They loved money, he said. They loved power. He said, and they'd rather seek for those riches now than be content waiting to receive them in the kingdom. In short, what Jesus said is the Pharisees are fakes, they are counterfeits, and they are frauds. Now, as you take that in, you're sitting at Jesus' feet, you're hearing these things while thinking about all that you've seen in your life with these guys, and you're starting to wonder, you know what, is there anything I've been taught that's correct? I mean, is anything real anymore? He just rocked your world. He just called into question everything you've ever heard or been taught about being religious in Israel. Because, friends, if the Pharisees were not God's spokespeople, then what does that say about their law or their traditions or their rituals or all the things they commanded that everyone in Israel should do? Was Moses wrong too? Are the feasts irrelevant? Has the temple service been rendered invalid? What is real anymore if the Pharisees aren't real? Now, you and I have grown up with the Gospels, so we've grown up with the sort of perspective that we already have on the Pharisees being the bad guys in the story. But if you can possibly step back from that just for a moment, put yourself 2,000 years back in history, and see these guys the way the Jews would have seen them in their own day, you have to appreciate how striking Jesus' words would have been and how much you might have questioned whether Jesus was throwing out the whole thing. And I think Jesus anticipated that some people would have that concern, which is why the next passage in this sermon in Matthew chapter 5 is the way it is, because Jesus preempts that concern. Look at Matthew 5, 17. He says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so look at verse 17. 
Jesus addresses the crowd and he says, concerning their fears, he says, I did not come. And of course, what he means is my mission to arrive from heaven in the form of man. That mission was not about putting an end to the law or the prophets, he says. Now, there are those, and I'm sure there's some in this room that will already know where I'm going. There are those in the church today who come to Jesus's words here in chapter five, and they use them to claim that some or all of the law that God gave to Israel remains in effect for the Christian today. They would tell you that despite the consistent and unequivocal teaching of scripture that we are not under the law, despite that, they would tell us that Jesus's words here tell the church that the law continues on for us today. But as usually is the case with that kind of wrong teaching, the claim comes out of a misinterpretation built on taking what he said out of context. That's always usually the problem. When somebody says something that's not true in the Bible, it usually starts with them taking something out of context and misusing it. That's what's happening here. First, let's understand what he actually said. He said, he did not come to abolish what? Notice what he says. The law or the prophets. Do you notice that? For a Jew, the phrase law or prophets is their way of saying what? The whole Bible, the scripture, right? I mean, since the New Testament didn't exist in his day, they didn't walk around calling their Bible the Old Testament. You get it? That wouldn't make any sense. What did they call their Bible? They called their Bible the law and the prophets or or the prophets. Sometimes you hear it said Moses and the prophets. Those are all terms that mean the same thing. The scriptures, the written word of God, the Bible. All right, so Jesus, in effect, just said, I did not come to abolish the Bible. That's what he said. And of course, you know, Jesus never advocated for doing away with the word of God. I mean, for crying out loud, he is the word. I mean, that's not even a sensible claim, right? He's not a revolutionary. He's not advocating anarchy or lawlessness. That's not his point. But he knew his critics would make that charge. So he says that's not the case. But what we also just learned from that is it's clear he's not talking strictly about just the Mosaic law here. So this is not a question of whether a Christian must follow that law. He's answering critics who said he wants you to ignore all of the word. Now, knowing that context, therefore, we cannot go to this passage and use it to support or defend some particular view that we have on the question of whether a Christian needs to follow the law of Moses or not. Frankly, this text has nothing to say on that matter because he's not talking about that issue. On the, on the contrary, where would I go in the Bible to determine whether I'm supposed to follow the law of Moses or not? Well, I would go to any of many other passages where that question is specifically addressed. And the answer in every case is, no, we do not live under the law of Moses. And if you have any questions about that, I'm not going to dive into that any further today. But go take the Roman study we have online. It's free, and it covers it in detail. But for now, go back to the passage in Matthew 5.17. It should be translated roughly this way. Don't think I came to abolish the written word of God. On the contrary, I came to fulfill all that God's word requires. Jesus came to live as a man on earth in perfect compliance with God's word, never committing a single act of sin. Being born as a Jew, he had to do the law because he was under the law. But he also lived in perfect compliance with the rest of the word of God. And more than that, he says, I lived in compliance with all of what the prophets said, which means he fulfills all the prophecies concerning Messiah. Some of those prophecies, by the way, he has yet to fulfill. So that means he's coming back. That means there's more work to be done. We'll see him do those in the kingdom or shortly before. The point is, he was perfectly righteous in all that he thought 
and in all that he said and in all that he did. And therefore, his earthly life will bring to pass all that Scripture requires and promises. So in that sense, Jesus fulfills the Word of God. He is the only human being who has ever done so or ever will do so, because no one else could. Now, there's something that comes out of that truth that's very important for you and for me. Jesus' perfect life, therefore, sets the standard for entry into heaven. His life is the standard for whether or not you enter into heaven, the Bible says. The Bible describes equaling his perfect life as entering into the glory of God or equaling the glory of God. That's how the Bible discusses or talks of being as good as Jesus, equaling the glory of God. Now, if you equal the glory of God, then you are eligible to enter into God's presence. Jesus met that standard because he was God. He did what was required. But the Bible says one other thing you should know. It says in Romans 3.23 that everyone sins and that everyone therefore falls short of the glory of God, falling short of the standard that you have to meet to get into heaven. Guess what? Nobody can get into heaven. Or so it would seem. You're all born sinners. Okay, I am too, but I like saying it that way. (laughs) You're all sinners. You're sinners by your nature. You ever heard it said, you're not a sinner because you sin, but rather you sin because you were born a sinner. Your nature came first and it drove the behavior. And that behavior was sinning. Anybody who's ever raised a two-year-old knows that sin is there from the very beginning. You start sinning, in fact, before you even know what sin is. So by the time you realize what the standard is, you've already lost. Now, that's why Jesus had to come, he says. He came to accomplish all that the Word of God required because we can't do it. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your substitute, the Father says He's willing to credit you with Christ's perfection in place of your imperfection. And then, as you know, Jesus did it a step further He went to a cross and died a death he didn't deserve to pay the price for the sin you already had. And if you're thinking that perhaps you can find some way around this standard, that what I just said won't apply to you, well, then take note of what Jesus says in verse 18. Jesus testifies that the word of God is going to stand the test of time. It's going to be proven right in the end. When all is said and done, Jesus says the word of God will still be there, setting the standard for entering heaven and convicting any who cannot meet it. In fact, Jesus says that the physical universe itself is less enduring than the Word of God. I love to think about that. Just imagine it for a half a second. Consider the vastness of space. You know, your science teachers tell you it was all here before we were here and it's all going to be here long after we're here. It it kind of boils down to this. The lie of the world is that you are temporary and the universe is permanent. And the truth is, as always, exactly the opposite of what the world says. You are eternal and the universe is temporary. The only question is where you're going to spend that eternity. Jesus says, when it's all gone, when space is gone, when the planets are gone, when the galaxies are gone, when it's all gone, you know what you're going to still have? You're still going to be experiencing in whatever God has next for you, what he wrote in his word. So if you think the universe is unshakable, what does it say about the word of God? He says, everything will come to pass exactly as he has spoken it, because Jesus fulfills it for us. And in that sense... Jesus says, it's like every stroke, every letter, every tiny detail of the word will be fulfilled. And he uses a very uniquely Jewish idiom here that proves to be important to what he's saying about the Pharisees. 
He says, not the smallest letter or stroke of the word would go unaccomplished. What he's referring to is a unique characteristic to Hebrew writing, the way Hebrew letters are written. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, by size, by physical size on the paper, it's called a jot in English. You may have seen in some older translations this passage translated jot or tittle as opposed to word or stroke. That's actually a more literal translation. Jot refers to a letter of Hebrew that is about the size of an apostrophe in English. That's a whole letter made up of just that little tiny stroke. And then secondly, in Hebrew, some characters are distinguished one from another by the merest little slightest protrusion. Like if you don't know Hebrew, you'd never know they're different letters. You have to look carefully and there's just a slight little protrusion on one part of the letter. And that's enough to make the two letters different. And so what Jesus says is this. Even the smallest letter, even the most subtle stroke of the Hebrew alphabet has purpose and has meaning in God's word. And therefore, every detail in scripture, no matter how minor it is, will come to pass and cannot be set aside. Have you ever heard some Bible teacher tell you that there's not a misplaced word in scripture, that there's nothing there on the page that's not intended by God, and you think... Okay, I get it. You're saying it's all trustworthy, but let's not go overboard. I mean, what's the difference one letter here or there? Well, look at your own Lord's words concerning that detail. Today, we have a doctrine built on Jesus' statement. It's called the inerrancy of Scripture. And what that says is that every word in the original written manuscripts that we have are exactly as God intended them with absolutely no mistake or error. Not a single letter is out of place. That's what Jesus said. Now, if you don't believe that, you find yourself in a very precarious position as someone trying to understand the Bible. Because where do you go next? Ask yourself that. If you allow for some error, where do you draw the line? Well, I can tell you what human nature will do over time. At first, you'll only draw the line on the smallest irrelevant details, so-called irrelevant. But eventually, you end up in the place where that whole section can't be right. Everything from Genesis 1 through 6, well, that's all myth. We know that didn't happen. Adam and Eve, what a joke. We have animals that turned into humans. And the flood, come on, you can't put all those animals in one boat. That must be a story. Okay, we'll keep going. That's Genesis 6 through 9. So everything after Genesis 10 is accurate? Well, we don't know if Abraham actually lived. Okay, 11 through 22. Now where do you go? There's people today that don't believe David actually existed. Or Solomon. My point is this. It's a slippery slope that you can't climb back up. What do we believe here? Every single word. And not from some blind, dumb devotion to this, and we don't want to have to think anymore about it. No, I believe it because Jesus said it. And that's enough for me. And the more I've studied it, the more it's proven itself to me to be just as accurate as Jesus said it was. There was a day in the past when I'd believed in evolution until I looked into it enough to realize what a, what a piece of nonsense it was, that the science itself was wrong, and then the Bible came to life. If that's not how you think today, don't worry, you can still come here. We're not saying you have to believe that. I'm saying this, though, the more you devote yourself to believing what this thing says, the more it'll change you because that's the whole point. You know, it's not like we showed up the way Jesus wanted us. We showed up the way we were because he took us the way we were. But now he has a love for us that's so great, he wants to change us into who he is. And that requires us yielding to what we see in this book. Jesus' idiom is emphasizing his commitment to fulfilling the written word because it's a perfect reflection of God's will. 
Those who accuse him of trying to tear down the word are dead wrong. He's so committed to complying with it that he says even the least detail he will make sure that he fulfills. Which is more, by the way, than the critics that are against him could claim. How many of them could claim they've done it all? But he could. But there's another reason why he used this idiom. He used it to make a point about the Pharisees. He was implying that while he will fulfill the written word, every jot, every tittle, every stroke, etc., He's not interested at all in fulfilling the oral law. Now, for those of you who were here earlier, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I explained how the scribes, how the Pharisees of this time had created a vast set of rules and traditions for Jewish life. These were rules that they first started to develop when they had come back from the captivity that they had in Babylon. At this point, that's roughly 600 years before Jesus. And in those succeeding centuries, these scribes began to create rules that were intended to protect Israel from ever violating Scripture again and finding themselves in captivity again. They called these new rules fences. Imagine someone putting a fence around something dangerous so that you won't go near it. That was the idea. So the thinking was this. If you keep the rules that I tell you to keep, you'll stay away from the real rule that God said you're not allowed to break. And therefore, we'll all be safe. Now, here's a classic example of what I mean by offense. And you'll get the whole sense of how ridiculous this whole thinking is when you look at the example I'm going to give you. It's an example from kosher requirements in Jewish life. In Jewish life today, under kosher laws, you cannot mix meat and dairy in the same meal. You cannot have meat and dairy together. So if you go to a kosher kitchen, for example, in Israel, the meat products and the dairy products are never combined or served together. And to make sure that that doesn't happen... The kitchen will maintain separate dishes, separate pots and pans, separate refrigerators, so that the two never get near each other, nor is any plate that ever had meat on it ever going to find dairy on it at any time, and vice versa. That's what goes on in kosher kitchens all along. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, then you know those rules I just described are not in our Bible. So then you might ask yourself, well, why did the Pharisees make those laws? What was their thinking? Well, in Exodus, and later again in Deuteronomy, you find a law that God gave to Israel that says you may not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That practice in the time God gave the law to Moses, that practice was uniquely associated with Baal worship among Canaanites who lived in the land where Joshua entered. In Canaanite pagan rituals, the worshipers would take a baby goat from its mother right after it's born. And they would take it and kill it and boil it to eat it. And the the fluid that they boil it in was the milk from the nursing mother. It was just a practice they had adopted as part of their idolatry. So what God did to Israel is he said, don't participate in this particular Canaan worship practice so that you won't be drawn into idolatry. All right, well, the rabbis and the scribes looked at this law and they said, we need to create a fence because we don't want anyone to suddenly accidentally fall into this law. And all of a sudden find themselves eating boiled goat from a mother's milk. That's literally what they were worried about. So their logic went this way. They wondered what would happen if a Jew bought a young goat from a butcher in the market. And then that same Jew went next door and bought milk from a farmer in the market. And unbeknownst to that Jew, the milk that he had just purchased happened to come from the mother of that young goat that he also just purchased, well then if that Jew took those things home and cooked the goat in the milk, he would have violated the law. And we can't have that. 
So to preclude any possibility of that accidental violation, they established rules that said, just don't mix meat and dairy at all. And over the centuries, this is where it gets silly, if it isn't already. Over the centuries, later rabbis come along and they, they got to do something too. I mean, they don't want to just sit by and do nothing. So they look at what's already been said and they go, let's tighten these up a little bit. There's still some room for possibility. There's still a possible way someone could violate this law. So those fences kept getting more and more encompassing. Until eventually, rabbis reached the point where they required separate dishes, separate pots, separate kitchens, and all the rest, just to make sure there's no chance anything could ever get combined. My friends, that is why today, if you go to Israel to a kosher McDonald's, you cannot order a cheeseburger. You cannot take a piece of cheese and put it on a hamburger. It's not a goat. doesn't matter. You cannot put it on a hamburger and serve it, because that's violating the law, they say. Now, once those rabbinical rules became firmly established in Jewish culture, the original intent of God's law was long lost, right? Who's even thinking about idolatry anymore? It's, what started as a prohibition against engaging in Canaanite pagan worship has turned into a silly concern over cheese sitting on a burger. And, of course, Jewish people follow these things with great zealousness and earnestness. Their sincerity is not in question. What I'm saying is the purpose behind the behavior has disconnected itself from anything that Scripture once provided. In fact, by the time the rabbis had decided that outlawing, that they should outlaw the mixing of meat and dairy, Canaanites were extinct. They had already long since ceased to exist. Nevertheless, the rituals live on without purpose or reason and without any relationship to the Word of God. Now, over the centuries, this is what happened. Pharisees and their rules, they began to codify this into a book. And in Jesus' day, it was called the Mishnah. It's still called the Mishnah, but there's more that have come on since then, the Talmud and some others. But in Jesus' day, they had one principal work called the Mishnah. The word Mishnah in Hebrew just means repetition because that's effectively how it was learned. It was taught through repetition. But... What it records is centuries and centuries of pharisaical scope creep where what was somebody's rule today becomes someone else's new rule tomorrow and then another one adds on the next year until, as it is today, you can print out the Mishnah. It's over a thousand pages long. It covers tithing, feasts, Sabbaths, temple service, ritual cleaning, women, various crimes. I mean, it goes into every aspect of life. You know, there's a lot in the Gospels where Jesus confronts Pharisees over Sabbath rules and every single time, As we go through this gospel, we'll see this. Every single time there's a confrontation between Jesus and a Pharisee over the Sabbath. Do you know what rules are being contended over? Not anything in the Bible. Only the rules in the Mishnah. Which is why Jesus flaunted them to these guys. Because he's like, these are not my rules. These are your rules. And I have no obligation to keep your rules. Because they've lost any desire to support what God wanted anyway. Now, when you have a thousand pages of rules and you're a Pharisee and you want people in Israel to follow them, you've got to make sure they have some weight, some, some, some reason to follow them, right? Because who wants that extra burden? So you know what they said? They said it was Scripture. Only we know that Moses didn't write it. And yet, what they said was Moses received it from God. He just didn't write it down. They claimed that God commuted the Mishnah to Moses orally. And over the centuries, it's been passed down orally. Until after the Jews came back from Babylon, at which point then the scribes said, hey, we should write this down. And now you have a written book called the Mishnah that they tell you came from God. So it's called an oral law. Even though it's written today, it's still referred to as the oral law in contrast to the written law that God gave Moses. 
So in Christ's day, as he stands on the mount with this sermon, the Jews of his day had essentially two books called Scripture. They had first true Scripture, that is the Law and the Prophets, and then they had this additional work of so-called Scripture called the Mishnah. It's very much the same way Mormons today tell you they have the Bible and they have the Book of Mormon and they hold them up as equally important, right? But have you ever noticed how in Mormon culture they really only talk about the Book of Mormon? They really don't know what's in their Bible. They really don't care very much. They're pretty much devoted to just their own book. And friends, it was exactly the same way for Jews in Jesus' day. They followed the Mishnah. The average Jew knew nothing of what the Bible actually said. So when Jesus' accusers lined up to say, he's abolishing the law and the prophets, you know what they actually meant? He's disrespecting the Mishnah. That's what they were saying. They made no distinction between the two. In fact, the Pharisees were a lot more upset if you ignored their rules than they were if you ignored Scripture. Because those rules in the Bible, those are they're kind of hard to define sometimes, but it's really easy to understand the Mishnah in the sense that we can see what it says. So Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that those two works, Scripture and the Mishnah, are not equivalent. One came from God. The other was given by men. One was a path to life and godliness. The other was just mere self-righteousness. One must be accomplished. The other must be abolished, Jesus argued. And so I think he uses the idiom in verse 18, the thing about the, the stroke and the, and the jot and tittle of the law and all of that, to clarify where his allegiances were. He was committed to every stroke, every letter of the written word, but he cared nothing for the so-called oral law. And that one issue explains Everything you need to know about why Pharisees hated Jesus and why they contended. Think about it. If Jesus invalidated the Mishnah, what would happen to the Pharisees' power in the culture? Their whole job was to be one who adjudicated the Mishnah, kept people in line with it. So if people realized at some point that the Mishnah's requirements were not sent by God and therefore I can ignore them, well, the Pharisees instantly became irrelevant. Because their power and their wealth was based in their expertise in that book, not in the Word of God. And so at the core of the conflict in this fight that we're going to see play out, it's really a fight between the authority of Scripture and the teaching of men. The Pharisees said, what we say is equal to the Word of God, and therefore they substituted it for the Bible. And Jesus disputed those claims and even blatantly ignored the mission at times just to poke them in the eye. Oh, you say I can't do this on the Sabbath? Watch me do it. Because it's not from God. In every case where he does this, he's trying to make the point that when you pay attention to the rules of men, it's not as if you do that in light of the Scripture. That's not human nature. What you tend to do is forget Scripture and use the rules from men as a shortcut, as a simplified way to think that you're doing what God wants you to do. That same thing happens today because, friends, the enemy hadn't changed and he knows how important it is to discredit the word of God and to make sure we don't hear it quite right. And he works to discredit the word of God with a lie that comes in two different versions. To the irreligious of the world, that is, those who don't care about religion and don't practice religion, the lie goes this way. He says, the word of God is nonsense, it's myth, it's full of error, it is not written from any truly holy source, it's all just been made up by cavemen, you don't need to worry about it, ignore it. And of course, the world is happy to do so. But what about to the zealous of the world? What about the religious people? 
Well, Satan's lie is similar, but it comes from an opposite point of view. To that group, he says, oh, yeah, 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 Scripture is so holy. It's, it's so special. In fact, it's so special, you can't even understand it. You need to just stay away from it. I mean, the right way to reverence God's law is to take that book, make it about five times as big as it normally would be, gild it with gold, set it up on a pedestal behind you, and just don't touch it. Oh, and the zealous around us go, oh, yes, that's, that sounds really holy. God must love it when we do that with his written word. Oh, but now how do I understand it? Well, then he says, well, I can help you with that. Now, this whole idea of I don't want to touch it because it's too special, it always reminds me of my mother's china. You know what? That china that's special, and you're like, well, what do we have that for? Special occasions. How come we've never used it? Oh, it's too special. I don't want to use it, you know? My favorite example is when people get, like, new carpet or new couches, and they cover it in plastic. <laughs> Raise your hand. If, no, don't do that. It'll just embarrass you. They don't actually read it. I grew up in a house like this. We didn't read the Bible. We didn't touch the Bible. But if we hadn't talked about the Bible, oh, that's God's word. Can't understand it. Too special. So what do you have to do instead? We have to go to a priest or a pope or a sage or an imam or a Pharisee, and they interpret it for you because it's just too powerful and too special. We can't handle it, us mere mortals. And therefore, for the same reason, in the church, now I'm not talking anymore about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers, the zealous within the church. We have a way of doing this too, and I think it's, it's dangerous and we don't even know it. We study books about the Bible. We have our own little Mishnas. We don't call it that. We don't think of it like that, maybe. It's like the Catholic Catechism or the Book of Mormon. It's something that substitutes for studying the actual Bible because we just don't think we're ready for the real thing. We can't handle it. Somebody else can digest it and just give it back to us in little nice bite-sized pieces, and then we'll feel much better about it. What if they're wrong? Are they human? then they're wrong, at least somewhere. I mean, that's why we have the Bible, because there's nothing else better than it. And both these lies, the lie that he tells the unbeliever that says ignore it, and the lie he tells to the believer that says it's too special that you can even deal with it, they all have the same effect. They take your eye off the truth, and they replace it with stuff that's dressed up to look like it's from God. For those who care nothing about religion, their eyes will go somewhere else, like evolution or something instead of the Bible. For those who are zealous, what you do is you obscure your eyes from the word, thinking that's somehow pleasing God, and you go to something else that's supposed to get you there in an indirect way. We just need to guard against this trap, friends. I'm not saying every book that's about the Bible is wrong. I read them too. What I'm saying is they don't substitute for this. They don't substitute for it. There are a lot of Christians studying in so-called Bible studies or small groups, but when they gather, they don't open their Bible. They open up books about it. Or study pamphlets. I know uh, this is a, such a classic problem with, with men's groups and women's groups in my experience. And I won't get all negative on you, but I'm just saying that's where I see it most. Guys study books about being manly, godly man. Written by guys who are repelling from a rock on the cover. Right? And women have you know, ladies on video hyped up and emotional talking about their, their kids and their husbands. And they just go off for you know, story time for about 30 minutes and then throw a verse in at the end. And hey, we just learned something about the Bible. Probably you didn't. I have to tell you, probably you didn't. What you probably did was get entertainment, what I call church attainment. That stuff's fine if it's a supplement to the Bible. And it's fine because knowing the Bible, you'll be able to filter that stuff. You'll know what was good and what was not. You'll know what was valuable and what was not so good. And you'll have the truth as your filter. But if you put this thing aside because somebody else is giving you Mishnahs, so to speak, then how do you know if it's right? 
How do you know if you don't end up with what the Jews ended up in Jesus' day, which was a whole bunch of rules that had nothing to do with pleasing God, but sounded good? If you want to know how serious Jesus is about elevating the word of God over the opinions of men, hear what he says in verse 19. He says that anyone who advocates for the annulling or the ignoring, I would argue, of the word of God, even the least of what it says, is going to be held accountable. Such a person, Jesus said, will be least in the kingdom. Obviously, that would mean he's speaking about those who will enter the kingdom, which is to say he's talking to believers here. And he says, for the believer who might use their time and their effort on earth to weaken obedience to the word of God, they risk forfeiting their honor in the kingdom. They'll be there because you're there by faith alone, not by works. But there could be a consequence there. There's no greater way for a believer to offend Christ than to undermine the word of God among those in the body of Christ. Now, if you set your mind on the other thing, though, on obeying the word, he says, and on teaching others to do that, you can be the greatest in the kingdom. But I think he's actually making a veiled reference to himself. Because who can obey the word better than Jesus? No one. And who taught it better than Jesus? No one. So who will be greatest in the kingdom? Obviously, Jesus will be greatest in his own kingdom. But it's also a standard we all want to measure up to. So where does this leave the Pharisees as we wrap up? Remember, if you lived in that day, you saw those guys as the most religious, most dedicated and fervent followers of God. The the most you could imagine. So you might ask, well, aren't they going to get some honor for all of that piety, for all that zealousness? Look what he says in verse 20. He says, nope, they don't measure up. Your righteousness has to surpass them if you even want to get into the kingdom. That's like telling a Catholic that unless your righteousness exceeds the Pope, you can't get into heaven. Or a Mormon, unless your righteousness is greater than Joseph Smith, sorry, you can't get there. Or a Muslim, unless you're better than Muhammad, you're not going to heaven. What would you think would happen to the average Muslims? Was told, sorry guys, how many of you think you're equal to Muhammad? None of them would dare say yes. And then you say, well, sorry, that's the standard to get into heaven. You'd have a riot. But it's true. It's true. A scrupulous Pharisee was a long way from equaling the glory of God. They may have been the best in the room, but that just means, you know what they call the the person who comes in second in a race? The best loser. So you didn't, kids, your mom never told you that? I'm sorry. What Jesus says is, if you're not equal to the best, you can't get in. And that's all we have to say about them and the same at us. So as much as you stare down your noses at the Pharisees for all their hypocrisy, you're no better. We're no better. We do the same thing. You know, we all do it in our own way, though. We just carefully define the rules that we think will make us holy because they're also, conveniently, the ones we can do. And that's what lets us sleep at night. For example, if you like to lie, but you never cheat on your spouse, then I'm pretty sure that you tell yourself lying is no big deal to God. But... As you think yourself going to heaven, you're proud of the fact that you've been faithful in your marriage. Or you judge a homosexual or a murderer or a pagan by saying, well, there's no way those guys get to go to heaven. Conveniently forgetting your own lust, your own hatred of others, your own devotion to materialism. We all got something. That's what Pharisee did. Picked the things that they felt good at, ignored the things the Bible said, slept well at night. And they all went to hell in the end. So what do you have to do to get into heaven? You've got to be equal to Jesus. How do you do that? (laughs) Well, you don't try to mimic him because good luck with that. You accept his righteousness in your place, as you know, I hope. That by faith, God in heaven says, I'll let you have the credit for what my son did in your place. The great exchange. He took your sin on the cross. You take his perfection by faith. That's what Jesus was saying. 
These guys that you hold in such great esteem, they're hypocrites and liars. They made up their own rules and they don't know the standard. I'm the standard. But then he says, you can have my perfection. That's the gospel. You can have what I've done in fulfillment of the word of God only by faith and faith alone. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for teaching us tonight about righteousness through your word, about who the Pharisees were, about who we are, but mostly about who Christ is. The one who could live perfectly in fulfillment of all that the word required. The one who came for that purpose, to support our need by taking our place. Father, for those in this room who may have heard this for the first time, I pray their hearts would be stirred and there'd be courage given to them so that they might act boldly in what they've heard and seek for someone in this room to help them proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. For we want all who are here to enter the kingdom with us. And Father, for those of us who have entered by our faith and know these things, Father, just use this reminder in our heart this week that we are called to live out what we know, not in self-righteousness and not by our own rules, but by a faithful devotion to your word, by giving attention to what it says and giving our hearts to obedience. Thank you, Father, for that reminder. And thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.